on your outline you see the title of today's sermon the risk of riches or also known as the the road to riches agree with me in prayer most gracious lord we come before you once again lord we ask lord that you would speak to us this morning pray that you would give us lord and myself most especially clarity oh god as i speak your word give me boldness give me courage what I ask, Lord, that we would have here is to hear your word. Lord, that you would speak to us and remind us, O oh God, that you indeed are our all in all. You are everything that we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've ever visited a shopping centre or your favourite uh, clothing shop. You could be out and about, maybe in search of a new item of clothing. Um, Maybe you're just perusing, just walking with your friends and you spot an item of clothing that you, oh, I desire that. That's quite nice. Your favourite colour. Something that suited your style. Something that just caught your eyes. You purchased it. And you were really excited. It's like, oh, yeah, this is nice. Then the dilemma comes, doesn't it? The next day... You're thinking at home, you're pondering about this new purchase that you've got. You're thinking, when will I wear this? You're waiting for that right occasion. Thinking, yeah, it'll come. Maybe in a couple of weeks I could wear it to church. Or maybe that wedding, actually, yeah. I might be able to wear it then. Two weeks passes, a month, six months. A year, it's still in your wardrobe. It's not been worn. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. The Bible says you're rich. If you've got something in your wardrobe and it's been there for a year and you haven't worn it, you're rich. How do I know this? The reality is that if you've ever been in a tough financial situation, you wear everything in your wardrobe. You make sure you get maximum wear out that t- those two shoes that you have. They will be worn out. See, a rich person is defined by the abundance of possession, especially material wealth. A person defined as a rich person is someone that has more than they need. That includes every one of us here today. We have more than we need. Someone says, someone might say, I'm rich in Christ. Yes, we're rich in Christ, yes. But James is talking here about financial position, right? So as we look into this final chapter of James, let's not exclude ourselves because he's he's directing this at unbelieving um, folks, right? Those who are rich and those who are not of the household of faith. But let's not exclude ourselves from this message. See, if we recollect in the last sermon in James, we looked at chapters 4, 13 to 17. And James had warned believers not to live. We shouldn't live our lives in such a way that we presume tomorrow. We decide on what we're going to do tomorrow. We make plans for tomorrow. But does tomorrow, tomorrow may not come. 
We make plans as, as if we're in control of every step of our lives. When really our lives are, like he says, a mist that disappears, appears for a little while and vanishes. Only God has control of each of our lives and determines what happens today, tomorrow. A Christian should live in such a way that they're growing in dependency and trusting in God, his plans, his purposes, his direction, his leading, and forsake all self-dependent lifestyle. Now we've reached another, another stark warning to us. Warning. James, he's here this time. James writes addressing wealthy unbelievers. He pulls no punches here. He says this, he returns to an issue of the rich and the poor, which he's spoken about in chapters 1 and chapters 2. It comes hard. Particularly verse, chapter 2, verse 6, he says this previously. He says, but you have dishonoured the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honourable name by which you were called? See, the topic of money is difficult to talk about. As I was preparing, I was thinking, why is it difficult to talk about money? We live in a world that it's all about money, but we find it difficult to talk about it. We live in a world that money rules everything around us. Money is the common denominator amongst society as we know it. It can unify, but it can also break and separate people. It's a touchy subject because some of us have experienced the abuse of power, the position to extort money from Christian brothers and sisters or others, or even ourselves. But yet we all have bills. We all have bills to pay. There's not many things in this world that are free. We need money to survive. We need money for food. We need money for the increase in the energy bills. We need money for the fuel to get you to work tomorrow. But the number one reason why it's so difficult, why? is because actually, we all here, we wrestle with the pool of wealth. We want more. When is enough enough? See, money brings sovereignty. See, when the youth will know, as you, as you grow older and you begin to earn a little bit more, there's a sense that I can leave home now. I can leave the nest. It brings a sense of sovereignty. It gives a sense of security. You see money being stacked up, ready for a rainy day. It makes us happy. It provides opportunities, holidays, network, friends, experiences. But if you've ever watched The Lord of the Rings, if you haven't, well, it's nine hours. You know, if you've got nine hours to spare, I'd, I'd encourage you to watch it. But it's staged in the middle earth, earth, right? And the story follows Frodo, Frodo Baggins. And his quest, the quest of him and his friends, right? And his companions to defeat the evil Sauron. 
Zoran had gathered all the rings of power except this one ring which had been entrusted to Frodo. And the ring's primary power was to control other rings of power. But it also dominated the person with the ring. Whoever put the ring on, it dominated them. There was this force. And actually it brought from within that person those evil desires that they weren't even aware of. When the ring was there, the visions and the visions of power and glory would come upon them. Even the most kind-hearted Frodo Baggins, small in nature and stature, he also saw the temptation of riches. That's what wealth was like to those James is addressing here, but more so to us in this 21st century. Wealth as some form of hold, or at the very least, a huge temptation for us all. Wealth is a test of the worship of our hearts. Who will we trust in? It's a test of your character, of your desires, of your emotions, your focus. It's a test, a true test of who and what you're putting first. And so James sends a loud and clear warning. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. See, wealth brings huge risks. The storage of wealth. The stewardship of wealth. Let's take a look first at that first one. The storage of, the storage of wealth. See, James writes, come now, you weep. You rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Come now, he says, look now. Listen up, pay attention, consider this importance. See, he previously wrote about, he was warning previously in chapter 4 about those who boast about their life, their plans, yet are not seeking the Lord. They're not looking to the Lord for his counsel. See, you know when James is writing directly to, to brothers and sisters in Christ, he says brothers, but here is not. But we still can't discount ourselves from hearing what the message is. He calls the rich to weep and to howl. He says, weep, wail aloud. It's not a silent cry. He's saying, sob, cry, howl. It's an excruciating, loud, painful cry. It's a lament, not just an expression of just shedding tears, but an expression of grief. Ah! He says, howl, a cry with a loud voice. These words, these two words are used in poetic writings, lamenting of those who God has condemned for their serious sins. See, in Revelation 18, we're given examples of merchants, pagan kings, shipmasters, who have profited from evil kingdoms, and the Bible says weep and mourn aloud. Why? Because of the destruction that's to come. We're told here that the rich should weep and howl for the miseries that are coming. There is much trouble, distress, destruction for those who are rich, but not rich in Christ. 
We must understand that though this warning is to the rich who have stored up their riches and their goods, they've also oppressed the, the weak, the poor. They've dealt harshly with others in the name of gain. They've sought to abuse their position. They've lived a selfish lifestyle. But most significantly, they prove that actually their way of life is worshipping money, not the living God. And so we see here in verse 1, verse 1 reveals to us that there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment. How do you utilise your wealth? There is accountability of everything that has been given. And that is the point. Everything that you have, there will be a day of reckoning. If everything in this world is crafted and and created by the almighty creator, then surely everything that we have, they're his possessions. They're not ours, they're his possessions. He loans them to us. See, James is not stating here that this outcry and loud weeping is, is keeping in line with repentance. He's not saying that they're weeping and howling because they've, they're turning from their sins. He's saying here, this is a direct consequence a pronounced judgment on how they've lived their life here on earth. Weep and howl because the misery is coming. A taste of what is to come. There is no escape for them. The certainty is that the misery is coming. This reminds us of a story of the rich man, doesn't it? The rich man and Lazarus. In Luke 16, the rich man enjoyed so much on earth if Lazarus, on the other hand, he fed, up, fed off the scraps. He was poor. Nothing to offer. Yet Lazarus was the one that enjoyed the bosom of Abraham. He was comforted and secure. But a rich man was tormented in Hades. Desperate and anguished just even for a drop of water. If only I could have some. The desperation... Money could not save him from hell. See, the problem with money is it's, it's the corruption and the decay. And the key verse here is verse 3, which says, You have laid up your treasures in the last days. We are in the last days, brothers and sisters. From the time Jesus of Jesus' incarnation, the last days have begun. Jesus arriving... And this incarnation was the inauguration of a new creation. Everything else is fading away. But Jesus, his kingdom has already begun. His kingdom is here. His kingdom is to come. These are the last days and Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to gather his people. He's coming back to gather those who are in him. The king will return soon. Where will you be found? Will you be found storing up treasures like a squirrel, burying it? Will you be found burying your treasures, storing them up on earth or living for the glory of God? Will you be found seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? Are you consumed by the world's demands and pleasures to amass much because you only live once? 
Live for the moment, the world says. Live life in full, enjoy. See, the era of the rich in James is characterized by two things the content of the treasures. And then two, the misguided urgency to gain wealth in a limited period of time. What were these treasures? Verse 2 to 3 helps us to see. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. See, the rich had laid up riches, garments, Gold, silver. Thinking that's going to help them beyond this world. I wonder if you've thought about your shopping habits. Your food shopping habits. I was thinking this a while back. Is it better to, to shop for a week at a time? Or is it better to shop for a whole month? We'll probably come to different conclusions to those questions. But what I found is that I get excited when I go shopping for food, right? Because when I'm looking around, I'm like, oh, banana cake. Oh, I can make some tonight. Okay, custard. I like, I'm a sweet, I've got a sweet tooth, unfortunately. <laughs> but the thing is, as we're walking down those food, food aisles in the supermarkets, we're looking left and right. We get easily tempted, don't we? We get easily tempted. We see those three, four, two. If you go to Asda, all those offers, half price. And we fill up. We fill up. We fill up. We fill up. There's only so much our stomachs can eat. The reality is when the fridge is full, there's only two things that happens. It's either it's gluttony and you just eat, 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 eat. It's like, like there's no tomorrow. Or actually there is wastage. Because all that food that you've stored there, you can't finish it. And they have sell-by dates. I mean, oh, I can't eat it now. It's, it's expired two days ago. There's a challenge there. It's either wastage or gluttony. The problem is when we have so much, one way or another, there is wastage. There is corruption. There is the corroding of goods. But also mismanagement when there is so much. The more cash you carry in your pocket, I don't know about you, the more temptation to spend it all. Now we have cards. Now even the contact list on the phones is, is unlimited on some phones. It's so easy. Went to, to the fun fair a couple of weeks ago. And before you know it, it's like, oh, £2.50 here, £2 here. It's so easy to spend, spend, spend. A storage of wealth in whatever form whether by cars, clothes, food, jewellery, gold, silver, can be a distraction from the giver of those things. God himself. So anytime you have more than you need, there is a massive temptation to forsake God's government and to live on our own spiritual, man-made island our own sovereignty, our own government. <coughs> the primary reason why we store wealth is because we believe it's ours to store. So notice the repetition of the word your in verse is two to three. Your riches, your garments, your gold and silver. We hold on to wealth so tightly 
And some people say, rightly so, I've worked hard. I've worked hard for this. But it was it us in the first place. I've made such great investments, surely I can enjoy them now, spend it myself. Was it yours in the first place? Have you noticed that some of the wealthiest people in society are also the tightest? They're tight with their money. Yeah, you might see, you know, people call themselves philanthropists and stuff like that. But the amount in comparison to what they have that they give, it doesn't match up. There shouldn't be no poverty in our world nowadays. See, you find wealth travelling through generations of families, right? Lands, possessions being passed down from, down from lineage to lineage. But how many of us earn a living for the purpose of being a blessing to others? That actually, all that you've given to me, Lord, I'm going to share it with others. I'm going to be a blessing to others and meet their needs in one way or another. But often it's me, myself, and I. Or actually we're chasing because, oh, I've got so much bills, so much expenses. See, the thing is, what you think of your possession will be what you admire, worship. Your possession will be your security. It will be your comfort, a source of pride. See, the storage of earthly things is prone to corruption and destruction. Riches we know can rot. Clothes are prone to be eaten up by moths. We know that. But gold and, and silver, does it really corrode? Well, actually, science says it doesn't because there's no iron in there for it to oxidize and rust. Yet, James is speaking of something spiritual here. He's saying something spiritual here. He's saying that there is a connection between the physical decay that occurs with earthly riches and the spiritual decay. The middle of the verse 3 highlights this. It says, and their corrosion, which is riches, garments, gold, silvers, will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Those that pursue financial gain above gaining Christ, those that are ruled by their possessions and have no master and Lord in Jesus will pay the ultimate price of corrosion and destruction at the wrath of Christ himself. But brothers, why Focus on that when you have such spiritual blessings in Christ. He has it all. He has our eternal reward. He has given us everything that pertains to life now and godliness. To be set apart for him. To live for him. To do his will and to obey his commands. See, these landowners, riches, would testify against them, providing evidence of their corruption on the day of judgment. Such dead works of laying treasures would only deliver further misery 
as those things decay and come to nothing, they serve to prove their guilt and, the, and to fuel the condemnation of even the rich in life. Yes, rich in life, but condemnation to come. And there was a picture here, isn't there, of even those things that are being amassed, being also thrown into judgment with those that are not in Christ. It serves as an evidence and as a guilt, but also a form of judgment to come. See, wealth is temporary. It will disappear one way or another. Everything in this life will decay and deteriorate. The earth is under curse. Everything is winding down. Why should we store our treasures here? Why? Is it truly a sound investment? And the second point we can't miss here is is this misguided urgency in this limited time afforded. We live in a world in these last days where everything is about making money quick. Gather quickly. Rush to riches. Get rich quick schemes. The reality is that you and I have not got long. Our days are numbered. Our days are numbered. We are living in the last days. But these wicked rich think they are storing up treasures to enjoy, but they are only storing treasures for wrath on the day of judgment. We don't know tomorrow. James has reminded us previously, but yet the Bible clearly reveals that when we hear of rumours of war, calamity, pestilence, and so forth, that these are the last days. How should we live then? Well, we should not live as ones who think this current world is our home. The world and all, the tre- all its treasures will pass away. Whatever looks like it's glittering now has no eternal gain. What shines so brightly now is very dull and black and just useless on that day of judgment. Proverbs 38 to 10 says this, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This proverb reveals the temptations of both poverty and riches. Riches provide a sense of fullness, fulfillment, satisfaction, comfort, excitement. Look at feed me, the scripture says, feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is God? Who are you? Riches can make one feel like God. The denial of who God is, his character, his sovereignty, his power, his splendor, his presence. The denial of God only serves to replace it with a small letter G, God. That which you worship as lowercase g, God, is who you serve and what you serve. See, with the fullness of riches comes the temptation to question God's sovereignty, 
and his power, his whole character and counsel. But notice in this proverb as well, poverty brings its own temptation, doesn't it? It says a desperation to survive, consequently leading to stealing, to taking something that's not yours, literally stealing or defrauding others to get what may be needed, but through incorrect means. Ultimately, though, there is this self-effort and desire to reach for riches and show a lack of reverence for who God is. And that's why he says, once again, at the end of that verse, lest I be poor and still and profane the name of God. Both in riches and poverty, we can still chase riches and profane the name of God. So how should you live as a Christian looking to advance in your career? How should you ensure your family are catered for, yet look after and provide and be of help to others? When does saving up money, when does it become sinful? How can I ensure that I'm worshipping God and not serving money? How much money is too much? These are things to consider, brothers and sisters. I can't give you an answer for all those questions. But we must ponder in our hearts. We must think about every decision that we make. Am I serving God or am I serving money? Am I serving God or am I serving myself? And so follow me to the second point. The stewardship of wealth. Turn back with me to James. See, being wealthy, it's not a sin in and of itself, but using the way we use wealth is what can be sinful. The stewardship of wealth often is for selfish gain. That's what's sinful. And we see here, we see particularly here, if we read again verse 3 to 6, he says, you, that is the rich, that have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. And he does not resist you. There are five U's here. Five U's. That represents five ways. Five ways in which we show and can show poor and sinful stewardship of money and wealth. See, the poor stewardship of wealth is firstly to build and to store. That was our first point. To put our hopes in uncertain riches. Other than if your primary focus as a Christian these last days, if it's the pursuit of wealth, then do we remember the crash of 2008? Do we remember those times when everything just went? Everything crashed. The financial markets, work, things that people have been building up to for the future, all in a moment disintegrated, to remember those times. Not everything is certain in riches. 
Riches provide no certainty and indeed no salvation in the last days. It's like jumping out of a plane with an umbrella. It looks like a parachute, but it won't function as one. We can't afford to put our trust in things that are uncertain. The only certainty is in Christ. To be in Christ. To love Christ. To find him as your true treasure. See, the rich defraud others. This is the first of the use. You kept back by fraud. These rich Jewish unbelievers withheld the rightful wages for their workers. They employed these laborers through harvest time to cut down wheat, to gather the grains, with the promise of paying them what they were due. But yet, they had this money, but didn't want to commit to paying those wages. Their greed for money, their love for money, caused them to hold back. And in doing this, the rich people themselves were in debt to these workers. These poor labourers were Jewish Christians, as we will find out later this evening in verse 7. What made things worse is that these rich were also, also controlled the, the court system. They dragged the poor through the court system. They brought a case against them, but yet defrauded them in the courts because of their connections. Such fraud is, grave, is a grave sin. Verse 4 states that such action cries out against the offender. We're reminded when Cain killed his brother Abel, his blood, the Bible says, cried out to the Lord. There is an avenging of those that defraud, those who sin against others and cause them to be oppressed. See, James paints a similar scenario here, the injustice suffered by these poor Christians. These harvesters, their cries were crying out to the Lord as they were being exploited. Who to? To the Lord of hosts, the lords of the armies of heaven. This is the Lord that's mighty in battle, the Lord that avenges for his people. The Lord Jesus, he provides justice. Vengeance is the Lord's and he will repay. But notice the Lord hears the cries of his saints. He hears the cries of his children, the persecuted, and those who suffer at the hands of the wicked. Second you, the you that the rich lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. They received all their comfort in this life. They forsook and they forsake the comfort that is to come. The comfort of eternity. The comfort of being in God's presence. The comfort of knowing God. Even in the darkest of situations. See, luxury gained on the back of defrauding this poor. They were stealing. They were stealing from them. But the end result is only eternal death. They lived in, on the earth in a lavish way, almost like this earth is their, resi- their res- residence. But they didn't <coughs> contemplate life beyond the physical realm. 
They live in self-indulgence, only seeking to satisfy self, seeking to gratify sensual desires, doing what pleases them, pleasure and idleness. I'm rich now, I can do what I want. They lacked self-control. Indeed, they made themselves a self-made judge. The rich, the third you, the rich fattened their hearts in the day of slaughter. Gluttony, excess eating, habitual greed. You almost expect James here to, to talk about fattening our stomachs, right? But here he reveals a heart issue. He's saying that they fattened their hearts. That was what was being fattened. Their hearts, they stored and they ate to their hearts content. Lifestyle, comfort, joy. But they were being fattened for a day of slaughter. See, cows and sheep, we know before they're killed, they're fattened. They're caused to, they're raised on, on pastures to fatten them before they're being slaughtered. But de- these people did not rest in the pastures of our Lord. True green pastures that come in Christ. It's the delusion of riches. Whilst the rich is seeking to satisfy self, to satisfy urges, they are unaware, unaware, unconscious of the judgment that's to come, the judgment that's round the corner. Another you, you rich have condemned and murdered the righteous person. This is the, the great, greatest of the sin. There's a shift here from the, the collective, now a focus on the singular here. It's a single language. It says you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Each person, James is saying to us here, has a worth. Each person is valuable. Each person will be accounted for. Every person that they defrauded served as a judgment to themselves. Not just as a collective, but each individual. They inflicted pain and suffering on the poor. Their wicked desire for gain and wealth came at the cost of the weak. Some even faced death and starvation. Yet, the innocent did not resist them. They in fact had no power or ability to fight back. When dragged through the courts, they did not resist. They could not resist. They refused to fight back. Indeed, these are the type of people that killed the righteous person himself, the only righteous person himself, Jesus Christ, the true and living God, the one that came to serve sinners. Yet they crucified him. Yet we crucified him. Our sins sent him to the cross. Did he fight back? Did he smite back? Did he hit back? He didn't. He went to the cross for each and every one of us. 
so that in him we could have true riches. So that in him we can find true comfort. So that in him we can find our rest on green pastures. Where we can stand on solid ground. Where there are no uncertainties. Where in Christ we indeed, we are the majority. Because in Christ we will rule and reign with him. He's our king. And so don't serve money. Don't serve the things that seem worthy now, that seem glorious now. But look to things that are of eternal gain, things that will last, things that will stand the test of time. That's what truly matters. See, if, if, if you're not believing and trusting in Christ today, I urge you to repent and put your trust in God. Repent of what? Repent of the things that you have made an idol, things that have caused you to to focus only on those things as a way of salvation. Wealth does not bring salvation. It brings enjoyment for a moment, but it's like a mist that would vanish very soon. See, the sins, our sins are great, but judgment is coming. You can receive forgiveness of your sins if only you come to know this living God. This living God has come down to become poor so that you can be rich in him. This living God has that stood down, bent down his knees to serve you and me. Turn to him. Do not worship money. Worship him. Love him. Ask him for that heart to love him and to know him. God wants your heart. He doesn't want your riches. You can't buy your way into heaven. There is no amount of wealth that you can have that when you get there on that day, there is no amount of knocking, I've got something for you. There is no amount of money that will cause that gate to be open. Only a gate that ends in damnation. If you're trusting in God this morning, what should you do? How should you live? Once again, repent and trust in the Lord. Repent of where you're focused on other things more than God. Repent and ask the Lord for contentment. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6, 6-7, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. We take nothing out of it. So therefore, it says, take care. Take care of riches. Why? Because temptation is not far away. The more we have, the more temptation it is. And so we must have this paradigm and this mindset of, Lord, don't give me too much riches. Don't give me riches. Don't give me poverty. Give me what I need, Lord. What I need is what will really help me to keep my eyes on you. Why? Because someone is needful, turns to the giver, turns their attention to the giver in search that you're the one that gives me all I need. You're the one that satisfies. You're the one that makes my heart glad. You're the one that makes me love you more. The problem we have as Christians is that as we come to know more of God, we become relaxed as almost like he's just our friend. We come to him when we want certain things. 
But the Lord wants our hearts. He wants us to pursue him and to run with endurance. Those things that come our way to distract us from him. He's saying, lay them aside. Put your faith and trust in me. Seek me first. Seek his kingdom. Seek him in your marriage. Seek him as, the, as, as young ones, as youth. Growing up knowing the Lord. Seek him as singletons. Seek him knowing that he is your Lord and then your saviour. That in, even in times of waiting, in times of difficulty, that he alone is your fortress. He will come to your rescue. He will come to your salvation. There is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation except putting our trust in him, except repenting of our sins. So set your mind on God. Ask God to realign your desires, your thoughts, your ambitions to know him. For he is the author of your riches. Set your mind on things that are above, Colossians says, not things that are on earth. Things that have no eternal gain. Whatever good God has blessed you with, how should you use it? The Bible says, whatever good God has blessed you with, James has said previously that God is a giver of good gifts. He does give good gifts. But the Bible also says, be good, do good, be rich in good works, be generous, be ready to share, be a good steward of what God gives you. Let God supply your every need according to his riches in glory that's to come. That's how we store our treasures. That's how we store our treasures for eternal gain, for eternal life. Everything good, everything good as God has blessed you with, he entrusts you with them. James is particular about the test of our faith. And so riches and what God has given to you is a test of your character. It's a test of my character. It's a test of my faith. Do I hold on to something that's vanishing or do I hold on to something that's so secure? I might not see Christ now, but I see him in his word and I will see him face to face. You will see him face to face one day. If we hold on to him, so how will you use everything God has given to you? And what will be your gain? Amen.